Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Mike here at the top of this week's episode with Dr. Eve Rees. Dr. Eve is a writer, historian, podcaster, and currently a lecturer in history at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Their new book, All About Eve, is a memoir about the trans experience in which they explore their realisation that they were transgender at age 30. And if you'd like to hear Dr. Reese talk a little bit more about some of the things they talk about in this episode, I'd highly recommend you go and check out the book. If you like this episode, you might also like to hear episodes with uh, AFLW player Hannah Mouncey or comedian Anna Piper Scott, both of whom talk about a similar subject matter. And if you're new to Willosophy, there is a huge uh, back catalogue of episodes. If you scroll up in your feed, there are so many amazing chats that we've had over the years. So yeah, scroll up, check some of the other episodes out, support us, patreon.com slash philosophy for as little as a dollar a month. You get these episodes on a Sunday morning, one day earlier than everyone else with no ads, which is awesome. As well as that, you can go to tofop.com to check out all of the podcasts uh, we do on the Tofop network here and head to at Pod on Instagram if you would like to see all of the incredible artwork that uh, James Fosdyke does of all of our guests. Um, and feel free to reach out there if you've got any questions or suggestions for guests. It would be uh, awesome to hear from you there. Uh, but without further ado, I will leave it over to Will and Dr. Reese for this episode of Willosophy. Enjoy. <laughs> Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And this is how my show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you? Hi, um, I'm Eve Rees. I'm a historian. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. And I'm also a trans person um, who uses they, them pronouns. And I've just got a book out about the strange experience of realizing that I was transgender at the age of 30 and, you know, what that all meant and what happened next. So, yeah, so you've written a book. And firstly, let's just start with the book. It's called All About Eve. Yeah. And uh, what I... I have talked to a lot of people who are authors during this time of the difficulty of having to launch a book during a global pandemic when everybody's in lockdown. You don't get all the joy of the opening night parties and, you know, all the sort of things that you put all this hard work into writing this book and you're meant to be swanning around, receiving congratulations from everybody. What has it been like to try to launch a book, to be launching a book in a time of everybody being shut inside their houses? It's been really weird. And I mean, because for me, not just launching the book um, has come at a time of, you know, nearly nationwide lockdowns, but the whole process. Um, So I, um, you know, I'd spent many years as a historian writing, you know, for other historians, but my career of writing for a more general public only really started mid last year, mid 2020, when we were already in lockdown, when I won an essay prize and off the back of that got a book contract to write this, this memoir that I've just got out. And 
so, you know, all that happened, I won the prize. I got the excitement of the contract, you know, over Zoom while I was alone in my apartment, you know, in lockdown, just me and my cats. Then I wrote the book alone in lockdown with me and my cats. And, you know, all along, I think like many of us, I had this fantasy, oh, you know, 2020 was the bad year. Like everything will be great in 2021. I'll launch the book. There'll be like a launch party. I'll go to all these festivals all around the country. I'll meet readers. And I think, you know, for a lot of us, it's sinking in that it's, you know, 2021 is going to be, if anything, possibly worse than 2020 in terms of lockdowns and the Delta strain. And so, you know, the day we're recording this interview, my book is due to be launched in a couple of weeks at the end of August. And yeah, it's sinking in that, you know, I may well not be able to have a physical launch. I, you know, there's already been a lot of events cancelled interstate that I was scheduled to go to. I'm still meant to be going to the Melbourne Writers Festival, which is still fingers crossed on for it in September, but who knows what will happen. So it's it's a weird experience because I felt like I've established this whole new part of my identity, this whole new part of my career, all from like inside my apartment, just through a screen. So it's sort of um, quite hard to take it seriously or find it real. And, you know, it's also been lonely that I, you know, I haven't built up the kind of you know, face-to-face relationships in the literary community that I might otherwise, I haven't met readers face-to-face. You know, I've had a lot of great interaction with people online and things like Twitter and Instagram have been a lifesaver in that regard. But yeah, it's it's been a really surreal experience to say the least. And I just really hope that I can get some physical events in this year and that hopefully, hopefully next year we will have vaccinated enough people that, you know, I can get out and go to literary festivals and so on again. I know because I joke about the parties, but what I'm really trying to get to is the fact that writing a book and particularly, you know, what I imagine was a very personal memoir to write, like, as you said, in isolation, you know, surrounded by cats. How many cats do you have, by the way? Can I ask I that? have two cats. One I've had for several years, but the second one, Arabella, she was my panic um, buy at the beginning of lockdown last year. <laughs> While everyone was out buying toilet paper and tin tomatoes and pasta, I panic bought, well, didn't buy, adopted a kitten and she's been a lifesaver. But, you know, cats are great, but humans are even better. I think that you and I must have some similar instincts because I am currently in a lockdown situation solo. I had to leave my partner to come into a lockdown for work and she stayed in a place that is less locked down, which was a sensible decision by her, where our cat and two dogs are also with her. And so I've been in this, you know, empty house for, you know, five or six weeks now by myself. And I walked past the pet store the other day and I was like, if they have gotten adopted, like if they've got a rescue cat in there, I am going to get myself a cat today. I think luckily for the rest of my family, there was no cats in the vets that day or I would currently have a new kitten in my house. So you write this book and it is a solitary process and very much a like it's an inward process Mm. as well, because, you know, as someone who's written about history, you are now writing about, you know, your own story and your own history and trying to put that critical eye on who it is you are. Part of that always comes with the idea that you will get to talk to other authors, that you will be able to get feedback on your story, that you'll be able to meet and connect with the readers that you're writing this book for. So I, I, I don't want to diminish the fact that you are launching it in this time where you don't really get it, it it has a sense of like, you know, this is a, a public coming out story in a way, you know, like, you know, this is a story for the world about you. And yet you're not going to immediately get to connect with that world. So does that, I mean, does it disappoint you? How do you feel about that? Have you 
process that in a like sort of meaningful way or is your attitude very much this is just what the world's going through i'll put my stuff on hold very much like everybody else has to and yeah i just like your thoughts around how you feel about that definitely there's there is a lot of grief associated with it you know i think in a way like the rolling experience of the pandemic is this kind of um sort of unresolved vague grief where we're all losing things we thought were going to happen that were meaningful to all of us all of the time and you know I think for a lot of us that kind of grief of thinking oh I was going to go to these events I was going to meet other writers I was going to meet readers it's also balanced out by this acute awareness of oh well I'm so lucky you know I still have a job I still have you know I can work from home I still have somewhere to live so I think it can be hard to kind of honour that grief and name it because we don't want to kind of, you know, feel like we're just Mm -hmm. this privileged, you know, white Australian citizen with our first world problems. But it is... It is still a real um, loss and, you know, we're all we're all losing several years of our lives. And, you know, writing a book like this has been a dream of mine since childhood and, you know, getting the contract and finishing the book and holding it in my hand have been some of the most meaningful moments of my life. So to realise that the process of breaking out in the world is actually going to be very different to what I thought is... Um, it's, it is really, really sad. But I think, you know, my current coping strategy for dealing with these kind of rolling lockdowns is just not to kind of expect anything will happen anymore. Just like not plan ahead, which is hard for me because I'm a, you know, I am a sort of very organized, future thinking kind of person. But I'm really just trying to kind of focus in the next 24 hours at a time because, you know, like three days ago, there was zero cases in Melbourne and now we're in lockdown again and there's 29 cases. I mean, who knows what will happen in two days? You've just That's the only way to kind of keep yourself sane, I think. Yeah, I, I, I like what you said, though, about seeing and acknowledging people's grief because I think anyone who's been to therapy knows that, you know, compartmentalizing things or ignoring your own grief because there are other people in the world who are suffering more than you perhaps are suffering isn't a great and healthy way to live the rest of your life. And I do worry that one of the side effects, the future side effects of what we've gone through is a whole bunch of people have been told. And I think partly it's some of the people at the freedom rallies and these edges of Mm. society are people who've just been told for two years that, you know, it's fine that their businesses shut down. It's fine that they're unemployed because it's for the greater good. And I agree with that, by the way. You know, I think it is, we have sacrificed for the greater good. But if we refuse to acknowledge that people have also lost things during this time, there was quite a Twitter pylon on a woman who um, complained about her, you know, fertility and her capacity to have a baby. And look, I thought her her tweet itself was quite tone deaf. It, It sort of almost implied that there shouldn't be lockdowns because she needs to find a boyfriend. But the grief at the heart of it, which was, that this woman was at a point in her life where she didn't have the partner that she wanted and she wasn't in a position to have the baby that she clearly wanted. I thought that was a legitimate thing for her to feel upset that she was missing out on. And I I hope we can have a little bit more understanding that people have lost things and it's okay to acknowledge that they've lost things and it's okay for them to be a bit sad about the fact that things are not going exactly how they planned to be anyway that's my early saturday morning speech i'm sorry oh no i I couldn't believe you know i couldn't couldn't agree with you more i was really i saw that twitter pylon last week as well and was really shocked i mean i agree it was a tone deaf post but it's it's real like if you're in your mid-30s and you've got a like rapidly diminishing fertility window it's a big deal and 
I mean, you know, the sort of similar thing that happened to me and many people in the trans and gender diverse community was that the kind of long shot down of elective surgeries has really delayed the ability for many of us to get gender affirmation surgery. You know, I had initially planned to get gender affirmation surgery, top surgery in 2020. Um, And, you know, at the best of times, like, you know, in the pre-COVID world, there'd often be like a six to 12 month waiting list because there's so much demand and so few surgeons who do this in Australia. But of course, in 2020, because, you know, this is deemed an elective surgery, it um, couldn't take place in months on end, particularly in Melbourne, where I am. Uh, You know, that just became impossible. And even for me now, you know, I'm booked in for surgery uh, later this year. But you know, who knows if that will actually happen. It's it's very possible it won't. And that's an enormous grief because so many trans people, including myself, you know, we spend years and years of our life, you know, summoning the courage to come out and then to admit we want surgery. We admit we want to do this thing that kind of most people deem to be crazy and sick, like to change our body and to pay good money to do that. And then to kind of have geared yourself up and done done all the, you know, the medical gatekeeping and save the money because it's really bloody expensive and to be on the brink of that and then have it cancelled. I mean, that's an enormous loss. And I think that's the great kind of psychological challenge of our times is to be in this weird kind of, you know, double consciousness, consciousness where on the one hand we're like, yeah, the pandemic's really serious. Of course, we need lockdowns. Of course, we need to sacrifice things. We understand that. But also, it's just really fucking shit on a personal level that we all, you know, lose the opportunity to have businesses or life-saving surgeries or children or all these kind of things. Yeah. So, elective surgeries in general have obviously, and this is one of the things that is really talked about when we're talking about full hospitals, is full hospitals doesn't just mean they're full of, you know, COVID patients. It means that suddenly people who are coming in for other surgeries are not able to have those surgeries. And many of them are life-changing surgeries for the people who went through them. But I'm interested in the idea that gender-affirming surgeries are still considered to be elective (laughs) surgeries and how you feel about that. Can you speak to that a little bit more? And do you see a time in our future where we will move from them being considered to be elective surgeries? Yeah, you've hit on a very, very good point there, Will, because it's – a really a great irony that they're considered, you know, elective surgery because the current status is to, for a trans person to have access to gender affirmation surgery, you need to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria and that surgery, you know, with a, with a psychiatrist or a registered psychologist. So the surgery needs to be deemed medically necessary. So, you know, unlike cosmetic surgeries, you know, like breast enhancement or someone where, you know, anyone with the money and the inclination can just go up and say, yeah, I want this and book it in. If you're a trans person, you need to get medical permission to get the surgery and it needs to be deemed medical, medically necessary. So on the one hand, we're saying this is an elective. This is a matter of life and death. And often it literally is. You know, people need this surgery to be healthy and well. But then on the other hand, we're saying, oh, no, actually, it's elective. You know, we can cancel that if it's, you know, if we get too busy. So it's this awful kind of hypocrisy where we're meant to jump through all these hoops, but then they can take this life-saving surgery away from us. And, I mean, the other added layer to this is it's medically necessary surgery, but uh, it's incredibly expensive. I mean, you know, Medicare notionally covers it, but the gap is so great that for a lot of people it becomes totally unaffordable. You know, the the top surgery I'm looking at is sort of in the ten to fifteen thousand dollar range. That's quite cheap. You know, other other gender affirmation surgeries could be up to eighty thousand dollars. 
um, that you have to pay out of pocket. And when you take into account that, you know, trans people overall statistically are not rich because they tend to um, face, you know, discrimination, which means they're hard to get jobs and they often have other illnesses, which mean, you know, they're often unemployed or can be homeless or underemployed, I mean, this is not a great situation. And, you know, one of the really, you know, many urgent things that need to be done to improve the well-being of trans people and gender diverse people in this country is to make surgery more accessible, both in terms of, you know, improving the medical gatekeeping or getting rid of it altogether, but also getting more financial support in there. So people who need this surgery to stay alive can actually do it in a timely manner. Yeah, so so I've had a friend who's previously on this show, Anna Piper Scott, and if people have not heard that episode, I highly recommend it. And Anna was, you know, she's a stand-up comedian, so she um, was, you know, not a huge amount of money, you know, as an emerging stand-up comedian, and she was going to do a show um, for her top surgery where you had to raise the money for it. And, of course, that show has now been, yeah, cancelled, put off. And it's not just, you know, someone who's, going to pay their rent with that money this was somebody who was going to be able to have you know their body more represent their authentic inside self because of you know this surgery and again just every time i see those things cancelled i'm like that is a very real world consequence for somebody who cannot afford this surgery in any other way um people i think and look i i'm I'm very much of the opinion that i would hate to be one of those people who you know, judges somebody for, you know, not knowing something that I only learned six months ago. You know, I think that we've got to be very understanding that people come to these things and these experiences and their knowledge about the world at yeah, different rates and, you know, tr- try to show the kindness to other people, you know, that, you know, someone showed to you to teach you what was going on, you know. And so my understanding of trans issues has like exponentially, you know, developed over the last 10 years, you know, and I think that surgery is one of those things in the broader community where people are not as engaged in trans issues or not as understanding, maybe just don't know somebody who's been going through that situation. The idea of surgery is the one they find the most confronting. Do you think that is true? I don't know why. It might not be. That's only my observation. I mean, I think surgery is certainly like a really tricky thing to talk about with like trans people Mm. because for a long time, um, you know, like several decades ago, there was a real like kind of – objectifying fixation on trans surgery, like in trans people's genitals, you know, there's um, all these awful accounts of, you know, trans celebrities in the US going on talk shows and the host sort of asking, you know, so what are your genitals like if you had the surgery? So that kind of created a dynamic where trans people became really, you know, understandably reluctant to talk about surgery because it felt really invasive mm. and, you know, dehumanising. You know, you wouldn't go ask a random, you know, non-trans stranger about their genitals. Like, that would just be right. incredibly rude. None of their fucking, yeah. None None of of fucking business. business. One way or the other. So, also, it's not the defined... It's clearly... You've missed Yeah, the well, exactly. That's what I was about to say. That, you know, yeah. like this idea yeah. that transness or, you know, which is a matter of gender identity, is about genitals or your body, like, fundamentally misses the point because gender... Is is an identity which can manifest in like many different bodies. So, you know, some trans people want lots of surgery, some want none, and that's all fine. They're all like equally trans. So I think, I think definitely I agree with you that there is a misunderstanding around like the, the importance of surgery for trans people and the role it plays in trans lives. But I think that stems from like a reluctance for trans people to talk about surgery because it's often been this source of pain. 
um, and kind of stigmatization, but also just the like an, a kind of difficulty to kind of get cis people to grasp the nuances on it. That it's like not for everyone. This is not what it. This is not the definitive experience of being tra- trans. And so I think a lot of trans people were trying to steer the conversation away from bodies um, to talk more about what are our kind of gender identities and what are our experiences of being in the world rather than just, you know, what do we have between our legs? I'd, uh, I'm very interested in your story, but I just before we um, come back to that, I really wanted to just ask a question around history mm. and how your, you know, background in history and your understanding of history, has it given you signposts to deal with what we're currently going through in the world? Is there, does knowing history help in this time or does it actually worry you more in this time because you've seen shit play out before? That's a really good question. I mean, I think, you know, um, we've obviously seen a lot of kind of references to history over the last 12 months. You know, there's been all these headlines, you know, the lessons of history, what can, you know, the last pandemic, the 1918 influenza pandemic teach us about what's going to happen with COVID. And I mean, I guess I'm really sceptical about history being used in that way because that kind of logic or thinking is based on analogy. Like it's based on this idea that, well, you know, 1918, you know, COVID, they're both pandemics, so they'll be the same. When, yeah, they're both pandemics, but the world they existed in is totally different. Like our medical technology, our societies, our economies, they're worlds apart. Like it's kind of a bit meaningless. So I'm sceptical of that kind of lessons of history mode. But, yes, certainly I take comfort from history and it does impact my thinking. I think the main thing is, is it makes you realise that things are constantly changing, And, you know, when we're in the present and it can seem stuck and awful, it can really feel like there's no way out and we're just going to be in this, you know, miserable lockdown, you know, economically disastrous state of being forever. But my training as a historian really has taught me to think, you know, to always see things in their historical perspective and see that things are always being like made by humans and they seem like the status quo and they seem normal and they seem unavoidable and they're going to be there forever. That's just the way of things, you know, like the idea that women shouldn't vote, like that was just taken for granted for centuries. And then all of a sudden it wasn't. So I suppose it gives me faith that things do change and they change really quickly and they can change for the better. Uh, I do also see some interesting parallels, I suppose, between the 1920s, which is actually the my interests, my kind of period of historical interest, and the 2020s, which we're going into now, you know, our stereotype of the 1920s is they were like the decade of hedonism, uh, you know, the, the kind 20s. of the roaring 20s. Exactly. Yep. And often, you know, that's linked to World War One, like the trauma of coming out of the war and everyone wanted to have a great old time. But I think it's interesting to think in retrospect, of like how much of that was to do with the pandemic um, and how much will our own, you know, 2020s coming out of this pandemic, will they see a similar kind of hedonism or desire to kind of soak up the experience of life because we've been so shut down. I mean, I even saw that last weekend in Melbourne in our one weekend between lockdowns. Um, You know, I went out to catch up with friends and the city was just going crazy. I mean, there was this real fevered energy in the air, like everyone just wanted to soak up as much life as they could. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. How did you get interested in history? Let's. I'd love to know because one of my great regrets in life is that 
Uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure lots of people have this about their education, but so many of the things that I've ended up being interested in as an adult, I absolutely avoided when I was at school, when somebody was actually willing to teach me all about them for free. Like, you know, as an adult, I'm like, I wish I knew more about history. Well, yeah. what about those six years where someone was really trying to teach you history as much as they possibly could? And you definitely were not listening. But I'm like, so where did your love of history come from? Was it from school? Did you have like a great history teacher at school or something? like that or was it a post-school thing yeah no I was a really strange historian in that you know most people who come to history like it's a kind of a career path they only realize they want to pursue as an adult I knew from like early high school probably I I mean I'd always been a kid who loved books and stories and historical fiction and you know that kind of escapism And then when I was at high school, I just, you know, I had one of those golden teachers, those teachers who inspires in you the love for their discipline and changes your life. He was a man called Mr. Sajko at Merriweather High School in Newcastle. And he just was so enthusiastic, such a gifted teacher that he he made me realize that this was a a place in which I could kind of pour my love for like writing, research, um, thinking, learning about the world. Like they all kind of coalesced in history. And then when I was in year 10, I our school got us to kind of enter this national history competition that just started. And I won like the national one for year 10. So I got to go to Canberra and win like take, get a shiny medal. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, this could like be a thing that I could like be good at and like make money off and have a career as. Um, And so from that moment, that's when I knew I wanted to be a historian. So I, you know, then I finished school and went and did my arts degree and did honours in history, then went overseas and did a master's in history and then got a PhD in history all pretty quickly. So, you know, I was a kind of fully qualified historian before I was 30, which is pretty young in this field. And, um, And even though I, you know, there's a lot I could say now about the state of universities where I currently work. Um, I'm, you know, I don't regret like spending, you know, my entire twenties at university, essentially. Uh, I so believe in the importance of history and it's, you know, it's the best job in the world on a good day. Like you just get paid to read and think and write and learn interesting stuff. So, I mean, obviously, you know, I understand because of your work situation, you know, you might have to dance delicately around the question I'm about to ask you, but uh, feel free to dance in whatever way you want to dance around this. But I speak a lot on this show about the the value of education and how we value education in our society. So I'm not going to ask you a specific question. I'm just going to ask you a sort of broad picture question around where it is that you feel we prioritise education, particularly higher education in this country at the moment. And, you know, whether, look, I mean, I guess it's a bit of a leading question, like, but it feels to me as an external observer that we are not valuing higher education in the way that we should be. And it, it, it might have disastrous effects for the future of our country. Yeah, that's completely true. I mean, you know, it's been a long running issue for, um, many, many years in Australia um, that, you know, that kind of conservative governments have not valued the humanities and have underfunded them in various ways. But it's really accelerated during the pandemic. And in many ways, the story of universities in the pandemic is really akin to the story of the arts, where, um, you know, these are both industries that are so important to our well-being as you know as a nation as individuals they you know they just bring so much money into the economy they're worth billions of dollars 
but they were just completely overlooked um, in the government's sort of, you know, economic support during the pandemic. So, you know, universities were hit really hard in COVID for anyone who doesn't know. Um, the kind of business model of universities in Australia had been largely based around income from international students. And of course, you know, once the borders shut last year, that, you know, universities just lost all that. So it was quite disastrous. And universities should have been eligible for JobKeeper and, you know, went through the process several times of proving that, but the government changed the rules um, in what looked like a deliberate attempt to prevent universities getting from JobKeeper, getting JobKeeper. And that had catastrophic impacts. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of jobs were lost uh, nationwide. And, you know, at my university, we lost jobs last year in uh, voluntary redundancies. I'm at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Um, we also went on uh, what was called a job protection framework where we all took a, a pay cut across the university, which did save some jobs. But again, this year, we've, it's just been announced in recent weeks that we're going to lose another couple of hundred of jobs. And that just has huge, huge flow on effects. I mean, Obviously, for the individuals losing jobs, it's awful and, you know, it can be the end of their career, but it has massive impacts for the future kind of research capacity of this country. You know, generations of research we're losing um, because it's not just people who are losing their jobs now, it's people who are finishing their PhDs and won't go on to have research careers. Like these are people... These are our smartest people in the country or, you know, people who the most educated people in the country. They're experts in their field. It's just insane that we're not utilising their expertise and their skills to produce research, which will make everyone's lives better in so many ways. It also has huge impacts for students because, you know, there's more fewer staff to teach the same number of students, which means, you know, lower quality teaching it means increasing casualization of teaching which means that people teaching um courses are in casual contracts they're underpaid overworked they're not necessarily experts in the subject matter so it's a terrible experience for students um it's really like speaking of things we're grieving in the pandemic i mean this is definitely something that i'm grieving in the pandemic and i know everyone who works in tertiary education is and it's just the worst thing about it is that it's also avoidable. I mean, the government could have stepped in and bailed out universities in the way they're bailing out Qantas and, you know, airlines and other industries. And, you know, universities employ more people than airlines. Like it's it's just hard not to suspect that it's kind of a purely ideological attack on on universities and particularly the humanities, which are being particularly hardest hit. So um, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is whether Australia values history at all, because I have a sneaking suspicion that, like, if we you know, say that history is important, then we have to really reconcile with the fact that this country has a history beyond the 220 years that, you know, white people have been here and uh, that we need to deal with, you know, what happened there. And then we're going to have to acknowledge that there's, you know, 60,000 years or, you know, whatever the, you know, most accurate, you know, but, you know, a, a very long and storied and proud history of the actual owners of, you know, the country that we now live on. So, do do you feel that Australia sometimes just doesn't want to wrestle with its own history? Like, is that one of the things as a country that we just struggle with the most is that if we acknowledge history is important, then we're going to have to acknowledge all the wrongs that have been done in our history and actually reconcile with the real history of this country? Completely, completely. I think, you know, the real history of this country is 
really confronting and painful for all of us. I mean, it's painful for First Nations um, people who, you know, live with that history every day and still suffer the ongoing effects of settler colonialism. But it's also painful for settler Australians and white settler Australians who need to reckon with the fact that we're the beneficiaries of stealing someone else's land and destroying their culture and committing genocide against their people. And it's really hard to live with yourself when you've really fully faced that and the implications of that, that every day we're living on stolen lands, that I'm currently sitting to you on stolen Wurundjeri land in Kulin Nations, um, whose sovereignty was never ceded. And, you know, we say those words like in acknowledgements of country, but when you really think about it, it's incredibly painful and it's hard not to kind of get overwhelmed by guilt and grief for what that means. So I think definitely as a nation, we're not, we haven't been emotionally mature enough to grapple with that past, which is a real shame because, you know, time and again, First Nations people have shown that emotional maturity to reach out the olive branch and trying to build a better future. I mean, that's what the Uluru Statement from the Heart was about. That was about calling for a process of makarata, truth-telling, that will enable, you know, would have enabled us to fully sit with, to fully digest what had actually happened in Australia and then try to, you know, create a better nation for everyone. But we rejected that, White Australia did. And that's just, you know, does not really reflect well on any of us. And I do think, you know, there's a lot of causes of this problem. Um, and a lot of it does have to do with, you know, conservative governments pushing a certain agenda. But I do sometimes wonder whether it is a bit, whether one ingredient in the mix is the way we communicate history in this country. I mean, you said a few minutes ago that, you you know, you found history at high school boring. I think that's still the common experience that I have find with students in my classroom, that they come in and they're like, oh, Australian history is so boring. They want to do anything other than Australian history. And... We need, I think, as historians in universities, you know, we've been sitting with the full complexity of this history of this country for decades now. You know, all the research is there. The challenge for us is to find ways to take that knowledge and communicate it publicly in ways that are digestible, that confront people, but don't cause them to turn off entirely um, and really get us as a nation to be emotionally mature enough to sit with what has happened. And there are amazing historians doing things in this space, um, but we need more of them. And it's tricky at a time when historians are like actively discouraged from, in a way, from doing public work, because most historians, you know, if they're employed by a university, their kind of job performance, their job metrics are tied to how much they publish in an academic setting. So the kind of the model is that you get research, you, you do research, you get big grants, and then you write a journal article in a peer reviewed journal that's behind a paywall that'll be read by, you know, 10 other historians who are already experts in the same field as you. So that's a real kind of stumbling block to getting research out to a bigger public because if historians spend their time doing that, they're likely to have to imperil their career. So, you know, to go back to the problems with universities, I mean, this is this is another one that we need, you know, that if universities are going to be valued and funded by the public, we need that academics need to be supported to get their research out to the public. Uh, so I am very interested in the you know, history 
um, communication. I guess that's yeah. yeah what you're talking about here, which is how can we connect in the very in the same way as like Dr. Carl, you know, always says that he's not an expert scientist, but he's a science communicator. Like his job is to, you know, find out what the, you know, the scientists have come up with, what's been peer reviewed, what is, you know, the actual research. And then he is somebody who you can broadly communicate that in a way that is accessible to the public. So talk to me about podcasting and how podcasting came into your life. Yeah. So I'm, I co-host a podcast called Archive Fever with my Latrobe colleague, Claire Wright. And that was, we started that, um, God, nearly about three years ago now. And that was sort of an attempt uh, to do this work of like history communication. So I, as I said, I work at La Trobe University and La Trobe does have this kind of proud tradition of sort of trying to employ public intellectuals or support public scholarship. Uh, So more than other universities in Australia, it does really encourage people like me to get out there, to be on the radio, to do podcasts, to talk about history to a bigger public. And Claire, my um, colleague at La Trobe, she's, you know, she's a professor. She's more senior than me. She's been a real leader in this space for decades. You know, one of her history books um, a few years ago won the Stella Prize. She's won lots of big prizes for her work. And she and I were both really intrigued by the explosion of podcasting. We're like, oh, this seems like a cool new thing. We both listened to podcasts and we were both conscious that there were like lots of history podcasts overseas, but relatively few in Australia. So we um, we just kind of thought it would be a lot of fun to create one here um, because we're both really, really passionate about making history accessible. And we realise that this is just how people are consuming, you know, ideas these days. I mean, they're less likely to read an op-ed in a print newspaper, more like, much more likely to listen to a podcast. So we just wanted to go where the people were, basically. And also, you know, Claire and I are good mates. We realised it would be a lot of fun doing this thing together. So our podcast is, I mean, it's also deeply, deeply nerdy. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, we call it the peak nerd podcast. Um <laughs> It's, it's called Archive Fever because that's a phrase that a theorist called Jacques Derrida used um, in the 90s to describe, like, the kind of feverish excitement that one gets when you're in an archive doing research. And we use this idea as our kind of jumping off, jumping off point to interview a whole bunch of people about their research process. So, you know, we often see, like, the finished shiny product of research, like, this is what I found, this is the story. But Claire and I, because we're professional researchers, we knew that there's often like really interesting backstories into like, how did you find that? Like, what were the challenges? What couldn't you tell? Um, you know, what what did you learn about yourself doing that research process? So that's what we wanted to get at. Um, so we, you know, we interview historians, but we also interview like novelists who do research, uh, you know, art, visual artists, um, songwriters, all those kinds of people. And part of our thinking in it was trying to kind of take people kind of, I suppose, under the hood to show how history works. Because, you know, of course, another problem. I was going to say, what's our biggest misconception about how history works? Is well, that what you're about think, to explore? Well, I, was, I suppose I was about to talk about this kind of mistrust of experts and also this idea that, you know, oh, anyone can be a historian. Like, you know, you don't need specialist knowledge. Like you might for like physics. You just need to like read some stuff. So I suppose, you know, <laughs> we wanted to like show people like the, the kind of the, you know, 
complex skills that go into being a historian or a researcher and give people a bit, bring a bit of trust back to show like this is the really detailed, nuanced steps we're going through. So when we say X happens, like this is how we know. This is the kind of steps you go through. Like this is why we can trust us. We didn't just, you know, pull it out of our ass or like have this preconceived idea, um, you know, through a kind of personal ideology. This is this is the kind of rigorous research we go to to know how stuff happens. So our podcast is um, we're about to launch our third season at Melbourne Writers Festival in a few weeks, and it's been so much fun. Um, you know, you'd know yourself, Will, that just podcasting. It's, you know, it's just a great way to do work because you just get to have interesting conversations with people. So I am interested in the expertise around it because I think a lot of the time when we do read about history in this country, it does seem to be framed through ideology. You know, famously, you know, John Howard talked about the Black Armband, you know, view of Australian history. But there's been debates around uh, Bruce Pascoe's book recently mm-hmm. and historians who've had have a certain ideology, you know, making a different argument. So often when history is in the news, it is viewed through ideology, whether that is an ideology trying to dismiss what has been reported on or the idea that somebody is like, you know, presenting history from an ideology. We talk about you know, this idea of, you know, that white straight men, essentially, white straight cis men, they essentially have written most of history up until mm-hmm. a point, you know, be, you know the, to the victors, you know, the victors write the history or whatever they say. Is there, how accurate is our history and how rigorous is the process of, like, you know, as you as a historian yourself, how much do you separate, you know, your own personal views and ideology from your work or do they by necessity still influence you know your work yeah that's a great question i mean there's a few things to say in response to that like firstly that when you're doing academic research in history or in any discipline there are so many measures in place to ensure that it's rigorous so you know you you do the research and then you try and get something published and it goes out to what's called peer review and it get you get reviewed by peers who, you know, read what you've done. And if anything seems at all dubious, they pull you up, they make you go back, check your sources, change your argument, even not publish the piece altogether. So, you know, academic research has all these measures in place. Academic history does. So it's of a very, very high standard. That said, no serious historian working today would deny that their worldview influences what they write. I mean, you know, there is no one objective truth. I mean, yes, you can say, you know, this happened on that, you know, a certain date, like Australia Federated in 1901. You know, no one would doubt that. But historians aren't in the business of marking dates. What we're in the business of is creating meaning and explaining why things happened and there's no right one answer to those questions. So when we say, you know, what what caused federation or what did federation mean for Australia, there's a lot of different answers to that question that are all legitimate. And your answer to that question, of course, will be impacted by your life experience, by your worldview. But that doesn't mean it's bad history or it's ideological or, you know, you're biased. That just means you're a human. <laughs> like, and that happens in every single discipline. Uh, so, you know, we have those kind of peer review there to prevent people from making, you know, egregious errors or just making stuff up. But, you know, 
even if something is published through it gets through the peer review process it doesn't mean that's the final word on the subject you know i think a lot of the the kind of current furor about Bruce Pascoe has been a kind of concern of, oh, no, he's been criticised. That means he's wrong. Oh, my God. Like, how did we ever believe him? When actually, like, from an academic kind of history perspective, it's good that we're debating with him. That's how knowledge works. You know, someone says A and then we're like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds pretty decent. That sounds like a reasonable proposition. Then someone does more research, a bit more thinking. They're like, oh, no, actually, actually, I, didn't, I don't think you got it quite right. Actually, it's like A plus B. And then we're all like, oh, yeah, that, that seems pretty reasonable as well. And, you know, yes, that original person who said A might have been, you know, you could say they were proven wrong. But what has actually happened is that knowledge has advanced. Like as a whole community, we have all learned and grown together. Okay. So this is where I think we get really interesting because I think this is where as a society we're falling down is because this is also the problem with the scientific method. People seem to distrust science because something will be said to be true and then there'll be updated information and so that you know thing that they heard isn't true anymore and they go oh well scientists are wrong and then we can't trust scientists whereas the actual process of it you know there being advanced knowledge and there being a different opinion is actually part of the scientific process you know like one somebody comes up with a theory of one thing it is tested it is tested eventually it might be 100 years later. Sometimes it's 200 years later, some of these scientific theories. Somebody goes, well, it turns out that this thing that we've been, you know, like thinking was right for 200 years isn't right anymore. It doesn't mean that it wasn't the best answer we had until that point. It just means that now we have a better answer. Like we've finally been able to use whatever that was to come up with this better answer. That's a good thing. But I think for people who aren't we aren't told that or aren't explained that or we don't have an understanding in our society that being wrong is part of the historical process, the academic process, the scientific process. I feel like that is where our lack of trust in experts has come from as a society or part of part of it. Probably there's a lot of reasons, but that is part mm-hmm. of it, I think. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. I, I think I agree with you there. But when actually we should be conceiving of that like building of knowledge, not as like someone being wrong, but as growing knowledge, you know, things getting better, our knowledge getting more refined. Like to take a simple analogy, think about like your smartphone. You know, when we got our first iPhones or whatever back in, you know, I got mine in 2010, Mm. how cool did they seem then? Like they blew our minds, you know, that you could like touch the screen, it could connect to the internet. If we picked up that smartphone today, we'd be like, what is this piece of junk? It takes like five minutes to load like Google, like what's going on? But what that original phone wasn't wrong. It, we just like we just got better at making really fast, shiny smartphones. Oh, um, I remember and- I could load a hundred songs on my iPod, and I thought it was the greatest <laughs> invention that I've ever seen in my entire life. Like a hundred songs in my pocket. I know, I know, totally. And knowledge, like historical knowledge, scientific knowledge, just works totally the same way. Like it's not that people got stuff wrong or they should be shamed or we don't trust them. It's just that we've like learnt more stuff since then. I ask people on this show if they have a life philosophy of any kind. Do you have a – it can be big, small, indifferent. It can be more than one thing. um, But do you have some sort of life philosophy? Yeah, I do actually. Um, It can be summarised in a quote that I have tattooed on my left wrist called Live the Questions. Now, that quote comes from a German poet. Uh, called Rainer Maria Rilke, who was alive around the turn of the 20th century. And he has 
a really famous letter that he sent to a kind of young protege of his who was sort of angsting about a whole lot of stuff and, you know, just feeling really uncertain about everything. And Rilke wrote to the his um, his protege, he said, just just chill out. Like, don't don't try and find fixed certain answers now. Like, that's not the point. The point is to love the questions themselves, like to live in the questions and embrace that as part of the process. Like, that's what it is to live. And I discovered that quote uh, a few years ago when I was starting to question my gender. And it really resonated with me at the time because, you know, I was this phase of like, oh, I don't think I'm a woman, but like, what am I? I need to know straight away and I need to like, you know, sort it all off and fix it up and tie it up in a bow and have it done. And reading this poet made me realise like, it's okay not to know, like just leave the questions, go with it. So um, the day actually I was on holiday in uh Canada in um, Victoria, which is the, the capital of the province of British Columbia. And I, I was, you know, I've never, never been a, a big kind of experimenter with any kind of drugs, but when I was there, marijuana had just been legalized in BC. So I was like, oh, I'm here on holidays. It's legal. I'll give it a go. So I, you know, went down to the dispensary, um, got some, got some THC pills, took them, had a nice night, woke up the next morning that was the morning that I knew I was, that I really knew I was trans. I woke up that morning with this like crystal clear idea in my mind of you are not a woman, you're trans. And that kind of clarity um, was incredibly exciting. And it kind of made me feel like I'd been right to kind of trust this mantra of live the questions. So that morning I got up and I went straight to a tattoo parlor and I got this very groggy, hungover tattooist who clearly had a big night the night before. And I, yeah, I asked him to tattoo it on my wrist. Um, and it's, well, you know, so I look at it every day. That's a great advertisement for the handy drug people. You take one THC <laughs> pill. Suddenly, and suddenly you're, you're trans. You've got a I know. I know. I know. It's just a slippery slope. Degeneracy awaits. I know. <laughs> a I know. <laughs> it's a total gateway drug. Who knows what will happen next? I know. Uh, yeah, I know I was a bit reluctant to put that anecdote in my book for that exact reason. I thought it might be, you know, people say, oh, you just had a drug-induced psychosis, you're not really trans, <laughs> you know, you can't trust your own mind. But, um, you know, I like to think, like, there's a lot of interesting research coming out now about how psychedelics can have people have, you know, breakthrough experiences when they're really struggling with depression or anxiety. And I like to think that, for me, the THC had a similar experience. Like, all this stuff had been, like, you know, moving around my brain really messily for like months or years. And it just kind of enabled me to get to this point of clarity in a way that was really useful. Yeah, shut out some of the noise. I, I, okay. So it's interesting, your story, because it is a late, later in life story. I mean, you know, I, to mention Anna again, but Anna spoke to me about the idea that really she, she always was Anna. And, you know, and she kind of always knew that she was Anna and it just took a while for her to be able to be, you know, sort of publicly her legitimate self. But for you, it feels like it was a later in life realisation. Is that a, I mean, it's a question that you're dealing with clearly in the book anyway. And I tread carefully around, you know, what is polite and not polite to us. But I, I am interested in the idea that, so this wasn't something that you were aware of 
earlier in your life or do you now in retrospect look back at earlier in your life and understand that there were a whole bunch of signposts that you just perhaps hadn't quite acknowledged or seen or whatever? Yeah, 100%. I mean, my answer to that question is, you know, I didn't consciously know I was trans or name myself as trans till I was 30 years old. I'm 33 now. In retrospect, of course I can go back and see I had so much what I call gender trouble from a really, really young age. You know, there were so many obvious signs. Um, And what I think was going on for me is that I didn't have a language to talk about it. Um, You know, I knew something was wrong. I knew that I didn't quite know how to be a girl and that I kind of felt like I was always about to fail. Like I was always about to be found out as being like an imposter. But, you know, I grew up in Newcastle in the 90s and early 2000s. Like it was a pretty socially conservative place. Like I didn't know any gay people. I didn't know any people of colour, let alone trans people. Um, It just wasn't a word or a concept that I knew was possible for me. Like it literally wasn't thinkable. Um, You know, and then when I did the very few kind of depictions of transness I did encounter, like in films like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, like that was that was kind of transness as being a bit freakish, like as being weird and out there. And it was a pretty pejorative depiction, as most were, you know, until very recently. So I think, you know, like children are actually really smart. Like we're really good at knowing what we need to do to survive and be loved and safe. And I think my childhood brain was like, no, like something's going wrong here, but it's not even possible to think that I might be anything other than a good little girl. So what I'm going to do is just put all my energies into just being a really good little girl and try my very, very hardest to perform that role so people love me and tell me I'm good and I'm accepted. And that's what I did for a really long time. Um, You know, and I had a lot of issues along the way. Like I had really bad eating disorders as a teenager, which is really common with trans and gender diverse people of all stripes because we kind of have this, you know, discomfort with the body we were were born into and um, our gender identity. And so for me, I think, you know, being anorexic and being very thin was a way to kind of be more androgynous. It was a way to get rid of my breasts and my hips and I stopped having my period because I wanted, I couldn't deal with the, you know, the raw facts of being a woman. It just was, I knew it was wrong and this was the only way I could deal with it. And, you know, and later I became really addicted to exercise and that was a kind of similar um, similar process. And so I think in my journey, um, what changed for me was what's often called the trans tipping point, which happened around, you know, 2015. It's kind of this idea that, you know, suddenly about six years ago now, there started being more positive trans representation in culture. We had things like Orange is the New Black with Laverne Cox. Um, and she was on the cover of Time magazine. You know, we had The Danish Girl. We had all these films and so on. And there were books being written. And I was so attracted to this culture. I was like, oh, my God, like these people are incredible. And I was just so magnetized to it. And what I realized that, you know, I saw myself in these stories. I realized, oh, all those like wrong feelings, all that feelings of not belonging and all the shame and desire to escape my body that was transness. That was gender dysphoria. That's what it was. I just didn't have the words for it until now. And that was such a kind of, you know, exciting and explosive and terrifying 
experience. And and it's actually pretty common. You know, I think like, of course, there's, there's always been trans people who knew they were trans from day one, like as really little kids. But there's also been a lot of people like me who knew something was a bit off, but we just we just didn't have the words or the concepts to talk about it. And that was one of the re- really big reasons I wanted to write my book about my experience, because I think because the classic trans narrative was sold is, oh, you know, three years old, you were like refusing to wear dresses and said you only wanted to play with the boys. That's what a trans person looks like. And that wasn't my story. And I initially felt, oh, like maybe I'm not trans enough if that wasn't my story. And eventually I realized that was, you know, that was all bullshit. There's any, you know, huge number of ways to be trans. But I basically wanted to reassure reassure other people that you can take until you're 30, until you're 60, till you're 80 to realize you're trans. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you're not trans enough or you're not really trans or you're not legitimate. It's just everyone has a different experience and path through life. And, you know, it's very valid and sometimes wonderful to come out as trans as an adult. So, I mean, there must be, and again, I'm like, I, I could never have a true understanding of, you know, what the question is that I'm asking, but you're in Canada and you wake up and you know, you like, you're like, okay, well, I, I know now, like I feel who I am and I have an understanding of that. There's got to be then the dawning realization uh, of like, oh, now I'm going to have to tell people. Right? Because that comes with it, right? If you're going to live who you want to be and who you are, then you can't just do that in... Well, I mean, you've had to do some of it in isolation and maybe we'll talk about that as well. But, you know, but what what was reconciling with that? Was that a relief or was that scary to you, the idea that you would have to share this suddenly with people? I was so naive when I first realised that. I did not... I was just overjoyed. I at first in Canada, I was so freaking happy because I was like, finally, everything makes sense. I understand, and there's like a path forward, and I can take you know steps to change my body and my identity, and it's all gonna be great. And I, you know, I've like long existed in a pretty like progressive, liberal, you know, in a North Melbourne bubble where, you know, like I knew I had a lot of gay friends, I had gay colleagues, um, you know, my my parents are pretty progressive and open-minded I just was like this is gonna be no big deal like everyone's just gonna be totally cool with it like whatever like it's it's you know we've got marriage equality now we've had the chance to be point everyone's fine with this stuff like whatever so I was very naive because that is not how things happened at all I mean you know it's important to say that compared to many people I have had I've been extremely fortunate you know I I've had so much love and affirmation and wonderful, wonderful people in my life. But I also learned in ways that were often very painful that people are really uncomfortable with transness. And I think non-binary transness, which is sort of where I put myself, because, you know, someone like me who I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, I use they, them pronouns, like I my just existence challenges the gender system that we've all been raised to think is the only way of doing things. I'm this kind of walking provocation to the idea that there can only be men and only be women and that's it. Um, And how that manifests is that people find it really confronting and there's often a lot of hostility from quite surprising quarters which can make life pretty challenging. And, you know, even just things like people really struggle with they, them pronouns. 
um, you know, people keep reading you as the gender you're assigned at birth, even when you're told, you know, that's not that's not your truth. So it was a kind of slow dawning that this was when I got back from Canada, that this was actually going to be really hard, like harder than I had ever guessed. And, you know, I actually, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad for that initial naivety because it allowed me to like leap in and be like, yes, I'm trans. This is great news. Party time. Like let's have a gender reveal party where I reveal my own gender to the world. (laughs) Um, I think if I knew then what I know now, I, I, you know, I would have been more fearful and cautious. Um, But it was actually it was painful going through that process of coming out and not always getting the love and affirmation I wanted and needed um, and, you know, finding all sorts of barriers along the way. But it was also incredibly, incredibly valuable for the reason that it gave me an embodied experience of what it's like to be a marginalised person. You know, I'd lived my life as, you know, middle class, sort of upper middle class, white, blonde, able-bodied, highly educated you know, thought I was straight, thought I was cis person. You know, I had like all the privileges except being a man. You know, my life was so easy for me. Um, And of course, you know, my whole life I'd been anti-racist. I'd been a supporter of Indigenous rights. I'd been a supporter of, you know, LGBTQIA plus rights. But it was all kind of abstract. Like I'd never experienced what it was like to live in a marginalised body and have microaggressions every day and do all that extra labour of explaining you can, yourself to people. You can have time off. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, I'm a, you know, like white, white straight enough cis man. Like, do you know what I mean? Like I, I understand that my whatever level of, you know, um, support or allyship I have for any of those things I can turn it off at my door if I want to, like, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's a part-time job and, you know, I have no real actual skin in the game. And I think that, yeah, yeah, I mean, to then be in a point in your life where you suddenly have some skin in the game, like everyday skin in the game. It's your skin that's in the game. It is an entirely different thing. It's totally different in a way that I had no idea about. And I probably still don't have any idea about it, you know, because I'm still white. Like, I still can pass as a cis person. But it it was, I mean, it's painful, but it was so useful because it gave me empathy. <laughs> like, it was like, oh, oh, that's, that's what a microaggression feels like. Oh, that's what it feels like when you have to do all this, like, extra emotional labor of correcting someone in your pronouns and then they get really angry at you for being corrected and then you have to massage their feelings and that just, like, sucks up a whole part of, like, your energy for the day. And, you know, that made me kind of gave me some small insight into what it must be like to be a person of color and get all these, like, racial microaggressions all the time. Like, I'll never understand that fully, but it, it just made me get it in a way I never quite had before. And that is so useful just as a human being, I think, to have empathy and insight into other people's experience. And it just made me kinder. I was like, well, God, a lot of people are just having a really hard time getting through the day. Like, just don't be a dickhead. Just be nice to people <laughs> because a lot of people face a lot of different types of oppression. And often hidden. I mean, that's so the my one small insight, my toe that I dip into these waters, you know, and again, not analogous on any grand scale, but I I have chronic pain. So I have, you know, uh, chronic arthritis and there's probably about three or four million Australians who suffer from, you know, what they would describe as as chronic pain. And it's a bit of a hidden disease. Like if you have a broken leg, it's in a cast, you know, you're on. Yeah. Everybody's like, oh, how'd you break your leg? But a lot of people just live with this. Yeah, underlying chronic pain in their life. And it's the thing that I 
that's the one that I think this is your version of that. Try to remember that everybody has their chronic pain, whatever that happens to be, you know, whether it be their gender, their sexuality, the colour of their skin, their class and position in society, you know, and often you also can be in like, you know, you can be a person of colour in a lower class in society who also is trans and has chronic pain. Like sometimes you win the real perfect storm lottery of those things. One, one does not preclude you from the others, by the way. Well, and actually, you know, and quite in fact the opposite. They often tend to go together because of, you know, the way like oppressions intersect. Um, I think that's a really great analogy. Like my mum my has rheumatoid arthritis and has chronic pain from that. And I, you know, she's had that for, you know, nearly 20 years, but I think, coming out as trans and yeah recognizing the invisible burdens a lot of us carry definitely gave me more empathy for her experience as well so um you then you have this you know moment this you know wonderful moment in your life where you you know are just full of this excitement for you know kind of this realization around your sense of self and you know you 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 come back into the world you tell people you know obviously hopefully lots of really wonderful and positive stories some negative stories as well but you go through that process and then i imagine just as you're really sort of you know have kind of you know really come out you know properly to the people in your life and your world the world shuts down everybody is like you've got to just stay at home now so has that been challenging i mean particularly because you know i mean you've like had so much of this new this you not this new you but this yeah yeah, yeah. this you locked away from the world yeah completely it's like being trans in lockdown is it's like its own weird big thing um that i've thought and written a lot about like it's on the one hand, it's actually like better being locked down than being out in the world for the simple reason that like you don't have to think about your gender as much because, you know, gender is really relational, right? Like we we do gender differently depending on, you know, who we're with. So like, you know, if I was speaking to a woman right now, I would, you know, I'd be speaking differently than I am to you, Will. Like, and, you know, you you probably speak differently to men sometimes than you do to women. Like, we just have slightly different kind of body language and we're aware of being gendered in different ways by other people. And, you know, one of the kind of the crappy things about being out in the world is that I'm really made aware of my gender all the time because people misgender me. Like they assume I'm a woman, they call me lady, they call me miss, they call me girl. Um, You know, I'm aware of how my body looks. I'm really conscious of my clothes. When you're in lockdown, that just all vanishes. Like you're just, you're just a kind of brain on a stick looking into a screen in an apartment. You can just wear, you know, you don't even need to shower. You can wear whatever clothes you want, the most baggy things. Um, and it's actually can be really liberating mm. to feel, um, to be free of all that gender dysphoria and misgendering. Uh, it can be really, really great. I mean, just to give a small example of that, um, you know, out in the world, I, because I haven't had top, sur- top surgery yet, I wear a binder, which, um, flattens my breasts to, you know, create a flat chest because I have a lot of dysphoria around my breasts. You know, that's. I choose to do that. It's, it, it kind of has a lot of benefits, but it's really, really uncomfortable. Like it's, it's kind of a torture device in a way. Like it's so tight and hot and squeezes you and, you know, they can do long-term damage to your rib cage because they're so tight. You know, that's kind of the cost of going in the world at home because there's no one looking at my body. I don't need to wear a binder and suddenly I'm just physically much more comfortable. 
Um, so there was that side of it, but it was also, um, it was also lonely in the sense that, you know, I was at the phase of this really massive, new, exciting period of my life. And I wanted to go and meet other trans and gender diverse people and like find my people. And suddenly I couldn't, I mean, I did, you know, I found ways around that. I, um, with a good friend of mine, who's another trans writer, Sam Elkin, we created like an online trans writing collective and we'd meet on zoom um to talk about this kind of stuff um you know and write together talk about our experiences but you know it's not the same as being out in the world so like i have this funny experience of you know like i've now written a book about being part of the you know the great lgbtiqa plus community but i actually feel like part a bit of an imposter in that community in some ways because I've spent so little time in the kind of the physical spaces of that community like I haven't been to all like the dance parties and the like the the you know the gay bars and all those kind of things so it, it's a weird experience of feeling on the margins of something which is so core to my identity so I'm interested in that and how that informed the writing of the book and the perspective of the book because Obviously, you're telling your story, but you clearly have the understanding also that, like you said, you haven't been necessarily part of that community up until this point. So how did you navigate that? And I guess, you know, the historian in you, I imagine, had some rigorous you know, standards for, you know, how, what it is that you would write about and what you thought it was legitimate for you to write about and what it wasn't. Talk me through though that. Yeah, it was a really it was a really delicate kind of balancing act, and I don't know if I always got it right. You know, I'll I'll see what readers think. (laughs) I suppose I was, um, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, this is a memoir. I'm telling my story, right? But I'm also conscious that I'm, you know, I'm a pretty like privileged and in the way not the most interesting trans person out there and I want to contextualize my story that's been pretty easy in the bigger story of trans and gender diverse struggles historically and today so I I drew on my research skills you know to read a whole lot um you know lots of history lots of personal other personal accounts lots of film lots of research studies just to get, you know, the stats of, you know, the health outcomes and so on. And I kind of tried to situate my story in that bigger context. So, you know, I can say things like, you know, I don't get, you know, harassed in bathrooms, but, you know, 60% of, um, you know, of trans people in the US in a big study have had, you know, have had problems in bathrooms and fear of using public bathrooms because of people policing their gender. So it was, you know, it, it was valuable and really important to me to be able to show that, yes, this is one story and we connect to individual stories, but this is part of a bigger landscape. I mean, I assume you would have anyway, because it seems to be the sort of person that you are, which is, you know, obviously with your background in history and research. And I imagine that regardless of whether you're writing your book or not, you probably would have taken this approach of like understanding, you know, the history of, you know, trans people and the trans movement and the issues facing the community. Um, But it is as if you've done like a, uh, you know, intensive course in like, you know, an understanding of, you know, your story but where your story is in a in a grander story about you know like you know and it feels i don't know i'm interested from your point of view and this is Mm -hmm. a very external point of view i always think that perhaps 
you know, when you're in the middle of a disenfranchised group of any kind, like progress probably feels like it is incredibly slow. But it feels to me, certainly I'm just going to say from my personal perspective, mm. I'll just speak from that. My awareness of, you know, trans people, trans issues, my understanding of gender and sexuality and sex and all the differences and grey areas in between has been exponentially, it feels like in the last five years, ten years, you know, the last decade, there really has been incredible, you know, progress forward. Um but that's an external point of view. That's not from somebody who is in the middle of that. So does it feel like change is happening at a... At a is it, am I observing change happening in a very positive and quick way or is it still very muddy and slow from the inside? Well, yes to both answers. Yeah. Like you're totally correct in that there has been an exponential growth in, um, you know, in representation of trans people, in um, awareness in the broader community of, you know, um, what it means to be trans, of, you know, people talking about pronouns and knowing what they then pronouns are and, you know, having all gender toilets and things like that. There has been huge leaps and bounds Um in the last five to ten years, but as so often happens in, um, you know, liberation movements, that's accompanied by backlash. So, you know, just as we're getting out there in the world and telling our stories and being heard for the first time, there are a lot of um, quite quite daunting, quite frightening um, forces kind of pushing back against that. So, you know, just simple things like. The number of, you know, globally, the number of um, hate crimes and murders against trans and gender diverse people is going up. I mean, this is a particularly bad problem in the United States. Um, you know, around the world, there's been um, more and more uh, sort of anti-trans legislation, particularly in the US and the UK. There's been a lot of efforts to try and limit the ability, particularly for trans children, to under to undertake the healthcare they need and. A lot of us in Australia are very alarmed about that because it's often the case that Australia is a few years behind um, the UK and the US with these sort of trends. So there are some worrying signs that similar things are happening in Australia. Uh, so, you know, the like, for instance, the Australian newspaper is well known for having a pretty concerted campaign against trans and gender diverse people. Like they, there was some media analysis done where they published, you know, like a kind of nearly a PhD's worth of articles within a six-month period about trans people and 92% of them were negative and often had quite misleading information. So it does it does really feel like we're at this very fragile moment where we're on the kind of the brink of all of these rights and recognition. But a lot of that, you know, it, it's it's representation, but it's not legal protections yet. So it feels like it could easily be taken away. And what so often happens is that trans people like myself who put our heads above the parapet, we get bombarded with hate and, you know, blatant transphobia. You know, I've been trolled a lot online and, and so have many other people. So it's great that we've got all this representation and knowledge in the general community. That's so important. But that's not enough by itself. And we need to make sure that it's accompanied by by more legal protections and better healthcare support and a refusal to platform or condone the transphobic voices that still often get platformed in the media. Okay, so that's an interesting question. So 
the, ro- the roles and responsibilities. So obviously you, you mentioned the UK. Uh, obviously yeah. the, the turf movement seems yeah. to be incredibly strong. There seems to be an incredibly strong and, ex- and quite widely accepted you know, um, movement in the UK that we have seen elements here of here in Australia. But yes, I think like you, you worry that the full force of that, it seems to be that people's identity is something that, you know, particular parts of the media have decided can be lumped in with the culture wars. So we've got to have a day off writing about the ABC ruining Australia. So yeah. <laughs> it's good. We'll roll in the anti-trans stuff today and then we'll say that climate change isn't real tomorrow and that'll be us done for the week, you know. And, but we're talking about human beings, like real human beings who suddenly, you know, you're just a person, you're a person who's telling your story about who you are and then mm. you have an awareness that that then makes you a bit of a target. How how aware were you going into being very public about your story that it would come with, you know, trolls and, you know, being the target of, you know, columnists or whatever else might come with it, you know, that that you yourself would suddenly be somebody that not only, you know, like you get to live, you know, authentically who you are, mm-hmm. but in doing that, you're going to have to deal with all these people who suddenly have a problem with who you are. I mean, strangers. It's not enough that you have to deal with people in your own life. These are just complete strangers who are suddenly going to have an opinion on who you are just because that you are able to say who you are. Yeah, I, it's it's tough. I think I did, like, go into this with my eyes open to some extent. Um, you know, I mean, we'll see in <laughs> six, 12 months' time how bad it gets. <laughs> yeah. But I... I had a pretty kind of public mass coming out in that, you know, after I told friends and family that I was trans, I kind of, I I put a post on Twitter about being trans, which I kind of did hastily without really thinking through, didn't have a big Twitter following at all at the time, thought it would just sink without a trace. And it got, it got kind of picked up by some, you know, big, names in the media and, you know, went a bit viral. So basically I kind of outed myself to the whole internet accidentally one morning, um, which was great, but that came, that came with trolling. So I kind of knew from my first dipping the toe in my foot, in, you know, dipping my toe in the water of being a public trans person that it comes with backlash. And from then on, it's actually been quite a deliberate decision to keep going anyway, because I feel like the stakes are so high. Uh, you know, trans lives are so on the line. You know, half of trans kids in Australia have attempted suicide. Like just not not just thought about it, but attempted suicide. I just feel like in a situation like this, you know, a grown-up person like me who's got a job, got a house, got a lot of love and support in my life, got white privilege, I can deal with a few trolls. Like that's fine. Okay, I don't really. So tr- trolls, fine. Yeah. But the bigger issue is the Australian newspaper is not trolls. Well, I mean, that's a, an argument that some other people <laughs> can make, whatever they want to make. But they are at least, you know, trolls with a, a position of privilege in society, a big yeah. national broadsheet newspaper, a massive, you know, international news organisation, News Limited, you know, incredible power and money and, you know, all these things, you know, behind the scenes. So to give that much space to negative trans opinions if if you know if the statistic is 92 percent or whatever it was that you said mm. i mean that's disproportionate that's not like a broadsheet newspaper saying it, but even if you were talking about balance even if your idea was we're going to say so use climate change for example we, we are going to have a balanced approach to climate change in that we're going to have 50 percent 
you know, scientists <laughs> and 50% people who <laughs> haven't studied scientists. But, you know, you understand the point I'm making. At least you go, I well, 50-50. But 92-8 is not 50-50. That, that's yeah, not yeah. balanced. That is a major media campaign against who you are and who other people are. Yeah, it feels incredibly hostile. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously that 92% is is a you know, awful, frightening number. But I think even to go back to your point about balance, like I just want to pick that up because this isn't like balance is something we reserve for debate about ideas. This isn't a debate about ideas. This is about people's lives and dignity and safety and whether they're allowed to exist. That's not up for debate. Like, and well, so I par- think that apparently it is. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it you're shouldn't fine. be. If it you shouldn't read be. Editorial page in the yeah. Australia, and it is. But I mean, well, my it's really point, up to debate. <laughs> my point is that the debate framing, I think, is a big yeah. part of the problem, right? Like, because no, we I think agree. of it as the trans debate, mm. the trans issue. Yeah. yeah, we'll get a few like trans people and their advocates, and then we'll get like some turfs on the other side, and they can fight it out, and it'll be great clickbait. So I think the media does have a lot to answer for in positioning it as this. As, 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 a, as a topic that can be debated like a high school debate where someone wins, when really um, we need to change the way we think about this whole issue and think about it as a, like, a civil rights issue, as a liberation issue, as about the dignity of fellow human beings and, and about facts and truth. And so I really have a lot of issue with the idea that TERFs or gender critical people or random transphobes or random celebrities like JK Rowling who have thoughts about trans people, I really don't think they should be given a platform at all. I mean, sure, think whatever you want about trans people in your personal life. Like, I don't want to censor your opinion, but you're not an expert on trans topics. Like, you're not an expert in trans medicine or trans law, and you're not a trans person yourself. Therefore, you have no qualification or relevance to speak publicly to millions of people about trans people. And I really find it unfortunate that the media keeps platforming these people um, because it does incredible harm and really sets back the whole conversation about trans liberation and trans rights. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm, of course I agree with you, but yeah. I'm glad I asked because I think that you're absolutely right. Like the fact that it's even allowed to be something that is considered debatable is the problem in the first place it doesn't really matter well it still matters what the percentages are from then on but the initial problem is that we think it is a topic that is open to debate in the first place yeah Um, and yeah oh sorry and we know that you know we know that allies are out there like that actually the vast majority of the australian population supports trans rights you know there was some recent research done by equality australia and they found that like nearly 80 percent of people think that you know, trans Australians should have all the same rights as everyone else. So it's kind of a bit like marriage equality, I think, that it's kind of the community sentiment is actually like a lot ahead of how these issues are discussed in the media and in politics. Right. Yeah, I think that, yes, it's it's very interesting to me how often individual humans are absolutely fine. It's just when yeah. we're organised or rallied or, you know, on the, you know, yes, it's a very interesting topic. Oh, look, I could talk to you all day. This has been so fascinating, but I've got some standard questions that I ask everybody and I'm conscious about getting to those ones as well. So can I ask you this? What do you think happens when we die? When we die, I think that's it. We, um, there's no more consciousness after death, our bodies decay. I mean, I think it's clear that the 
the matter of our bodies, the energy in that, you know, is redistributed in the universe and goes on to do other things. But I don't believe there's any kind of life or really any spirit after death. I'm, yeah, that's just draw a line under it and you're gone. Does that thought uh, worry you at all? Does that thought bother you? Does it give you peace? Do you not think about it at all? I think it gives me peace because there's sort of, I I suppose I think of it as just a really big sleep and I love sleeping, you know. Um, (laughs) It's just the idea of a kind of, you know, all-encompassing nothingness, which is, you know, nothing to fear. It's just something that you'll kind of sink into after the big, the big long day of our life. So I, you know, I fear the death of my loved ones and I think about that, but I don't really fear my own death or think about it a lot because I think that'll just be it and I won't be alive to see it or, you know, think about it. And so there's no point worrying about it. What about the future? Do you have like, what's your perspective on, because particularly talking to somebody who has an understanding of history, mm. you probably have a deeper thought on this than sometimes when I ask people, because I guess I ask it from, I never know as human beings, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, geez, I don't know if we're absolutely nailing this at the moment. It feels like there's a whole mm. bunch of things going wrong with the world, you know, particularly climate change, but a whole range of things in our society that seem very troubling to me and we seem on a path to, you know, destruction. And yet there are so many other parts of our society, our innovation and our inclusiveness and those sort of things that do seem to be so much better than they used to be. It's very hard for me to get a sense at the moment of where we're at. Do you have like optimism for the future? Do you have hope for the future? Are you fearful for where we're at? I mean, particularly having an understanding of you know, what we've been through before, like how do you feel about what we're going through now? Yeah, it's it's hard. I think, you know, particularly with the climate change stuff, I had that moment a few years ago when the when that twenty eighteen IPCC report came out that said we've got twelve years left. I think that was the moment for me it really sank in how screwed we are and um you know i'd been aware of climate change for a long time and supported climate action but that was the moment where i was like oh this is going to happen in my lifetime like this is going to get really bad like i'm going to be here to see it and it's going to be frightening and i went through a really long period of despair and hopelessness and grief around that like to look at that full you know, like we were talking before about, you know, the terror of looking at our awful history. I think to look at our future can be equally, if not more terrifying. And But having kind of gone through that process and that grieving period, I suppose grieving for the future I thought I'd had, that, you know, I just have a life like my, my boomer parents where, you know, get a good job, have a house, do lots of international travel, you know, like relax on the weekends, go to the beach, like the Australian dream. I think I was grieving that and realizing, no, 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 no. That boomer life, that boomer good life, that was a blip in world history. That that was one generation. Most people, including me, we're going to have it a lot harder. And once I fully kind of metabolized and processed that grief, I kind of feel okay about the future now. Like I still think climate change is absolutely terrifying and, you know, of course we need to get to net zero as quickly as possible. And of course, you know, there are so many other things that need to change. But I'm not kind of overwhelmed with dread in the same way I was because I've kind of looked into the abyss 
contemplated the very worst things that could happen and kind of survived. I mean, they haven't happened to me yet, but I've kind of thought through them. And well, some, some might argue that some of them are happening to us right now. I mean, well, they nobody, are kind of happening to us. Yeah. Nobody knows for sure at the moment how, you know, the global pandemic started, but there's a – look – you know, at the end of the day, I won't be surprised if we find out the fact that we have, you know, deforestated all these native habitats for particular animals and they've had to, they've been infecting the human population with, you know, diseases that they can carry and it's all our own fucking fault for cutting down the forest yeah, in the first yeah, place. That will, will not surprise me if it turns out that is the case. So then you would argue that we are currently, the fact that the world's been shut down for two years is a direct result of climate change. But, oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as you say, we don't know for sure how it started, but I think that's a very very strong contender that this is a climate crisis pandemic so we're in the climate crisis like it's not something in the future and you know i suppose i see now the way forward is adaptation it's not like you know we can't put our head in the sand anymore and pretend this isn't happening we can't just kind of succumb to like despair and denialism and doomsday scenario because this is our lives now like it's the question is how do we live with it how do we look after ourselves and other people? How do we mitigate the very worst possible effects um, of this crisis? And I think the best way to cope with that is to take action that you hope will be, you know, be positive um, in that regard. So, you know, I just do a lot of small things, you know, I'm vegan because (laughs) to reduce my carbon footprint, I don't have a car. I don't travel very much at the moment, like many of us. Um, and, I, you know, I've been involved in climate activism and I'm doing work in the history profession to think about, you know, what role can historians play in in dealing with the climate crisis. So, you know, I think these are scary. It's a scary future, but we need to face it with our eyes open and realize realize the gift of every day because when you you stop taking for granted that you know i'll live until 90 and you know have great health and retire onto a golf course and be quaffing pinot noir every night you really start to appreciate the moment and every you know it's a kind of naff like cliched thing to say but in my case, it's really been true. Like it's given my sense of the looming threat and, you know, current threat of climate crisis has given me um, a real sense of urgency to live more more authentically. And I think, you know, coming out as trans is part of that. I think the sense of I don't have endless decades ahead of me, I've got to do the shit I want to do now, um, really propelled that into being very quickly and um, really, you know, shapes the way I live in a whole lot of ways. I would hate to be asked this question myself because I hate talking about like my good qualities, but I love asking it of other people because I would like to know what you consider to be your best quality. I think my best quality or the quality I'm most proud of is my willingness to question that which is taken for granted as the norm you know and to be willing to be different from the norm and to kind of suffer the consequences um you know i've i've tasted as we were saying before i've tasted what life was like as a really privileged person with a lot of you know trappings of success and i could have gone further down that route but i started questioning things and i've kept questioning things and Often that's a really lonely place to be, but it feels it feels authentic and it feels important because when one person questions something and challenges the status quo, a status quo which might be harmful and restrictive, it makes it easier for the next people to come after. So 
um, you know, I think as well as live the questions, probably my other life philosophy is be weird, <laughs> like be prepared to do what is weird and strange and different. Like I've recently quit caffeine because um, I felt like it just wasn't, was giving me a lot of anxiety. And, you know, let me tell you, if you quit caffeine in Melbourne, you're just basically a social outcast. They just yeah. like throw you outside the city gates. But, you know, I mean, that's a small, silly example, but I like I like questioning this idea that you need to have coffee every day to be a functional human being, and it's been great. I mean, I, I question that idea, but I can't stop drinking coffee. Like, I've questioned <laughs> it. I've certainly looked at my life and been like, it'd be great if you could drink less coffee. Like, why, should you, why are you drinking so much coffee, but I can't stop drinking coffee? And it's because it's a very, very addictive drug with long, It's incredibly long addictive. I know. I was, I was a wreck for like a month when I quit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a long withdrawal period. But on the other side, life is great. Life is great. Uh, you might not have an example of this, but I like asking the question in case you do, which is, do you remember? a terrible piece of advice that you've been given has anyone ever given you a bad piece of advice that maybe you believed at the time but you've later found out was absolutely not true yeah I think early in my academic career when I was still a PhD student um, you know really anxious about like trying to succeed and get a job because there are so few jobs in academia I was given advice to essentially follow the rules of the game like to play the game um, even though it was a kind of you know it was a toxic game that we all disagreed with that I had to play the game to succeed and I did do that for many years and in some ways it did serve me well but what I now see is that you know a I you know I lost a lot of life and joy and authenticity in the process but B, the game is changing so quickly. So no one knows what the rules of the game are. Like academia is changing so quickly. So what what the idea of a successful academic, even 10 years ago, it's so different today. And I think that's probably true of many rules of life, that if you try and replicate past successes, you're not guaranteed a future success because the model of success is always changing. So I think that's not great advice. You know, what I try and do now is just do what brings me joy and um, – you know, like not totally break rules, but not be so preoccupied with conforming to a kind of pre-existing model of what success looks like, but rather to define success for myself. If you had to do, um, you don't have to do your 10,000 hours. You just wake yeah. up tomorrow morning and you have a skill, any skill in the world. You just can now do that thing. What would you love to be able to do? I'd love to be able to speak like multiple languages. Yeah. Um I, yeah, I only speak English and I think that's a real failing, you know, personally. And it's kind of a failing of a society that so many of us in Australia who, you know, are white settlers who are born here, we only speak one language because, you know, it's a multicultural world and different languages have different ways of seeing and knowing the world. They have different concepts and it's a way to build barriers across culture. And I would love to be a part of that. And, yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed that I can't, but I've, you know, the perfection in me, perfectionist in me has been a real stumbling block here. I think I've tried to learn languages multiple times and I'm great for the first few lessons where it's like, you've got to learn five words and I can remember them all and get hundred percent right. But as soon as it gets a bit more complex and a bit more real world, I just freak out and back out. So I, I've yet to, um, yet to kind of overcome that, that obstacle, but hopefully one day in the future. Uh, so on my desk, I have as close to 
what I would consider an inspirational saying, you know, my, my version of a little hang in there with a, a cat. It's um, a piece of metal. I've had it just on my desk for years. And the question's always really important to me. The way I interpret it, I'll, I'll read you what it says and then I'll explain how I interpret it, but I want you to answer it however you would like to answer it. Uh, the question is, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? And it's helpful for me a lot for work, you know, so instead of me thinking about when I'm putting something together, what elements of this would make it successful, I like to imagine that it's already successful and then imagine what elements I wish were there, you know. If this thing is already guaranteed, this show is a very successful show, who do I want to work with? What do I want the show to be about? You know, these sort of things. But that is not how it needs to be interpreted to mm. you. I'm just explaining how it is to me. But I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? I'd write novels and be a full-time novelist and, and writer generally. Um, I I love history, um, obviously, and, you know, I love research. I love thinking about the past. But I've realised that my, my biggest love is words and books and language and, you know, that's that's where I want to spend my precious, you know, years left on this planet and... But it's terrifying. You know, I mean, I've, I've not published fiction before. It's really hard to make a living as a writer in Australia. Um, very few people do it. Uh, but that that is definitely where I would put my energies in if I knew I couldn't fail. Because, you know, I think reading a book and writing a book, they're some of the most kind of intimate acts we can do. Like we get this incredibly deep, deep connection to someone else's innermost world, to their soul. You know, I, I think in a way, you know, forget sex, like reading and writing is much more intimate than that kind of, you know, bodily connection because we're really we're really showing the most naked, raw, vulnerable parts of ourselves. And that feels like the most exciting part of being alive. And that's where I want to, that's where I want to be. The book is called All About Eve, Notes from a Transition, I believe. Is that correct? Did I get that? Yeah, that's correct. correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, I recommend that um so by the time people are hearing this it'll be out and um uh please go and check it out and hopefully there'll be like live events and writers festivals and parties to come in the future fingers crossed <laughs> uh final question and i've never asked the historian this so i'll be interested to hear what you have to say i have a time machine it goes forward in time but goes backwards in time um so you can either go forward or backwards um uh it is a one-way oh, – sorry, a, it's a return trip. You need to come back. You can't go and stay there. You can visit yourself. You can give yourself some advice. You can change your life in some way. But you can completely ignore yourself and just go and visit some time period in history that you'd always been fascinated by. Where would you go on your time machine? I'd go to Berlin in the, in the mid to late 1920s. Um, you know, we were when we were speaking about history before, I said the 1920s were my kind of special period of interest. And I would just love to go to that decade because just so much was going on. I mean, this is this period between World War One and World War Two. The world is an absolute tumult. World War One has blown apart all these kind of old ideas about how the world works. You know, everyone's grieving. There's a lot of trauma, but there's also so much creativity. Like there's so like think about all this amazing like modernist art, like huge, powerful artworks in literature, um, in visual art, in ballet, in music, 
so many of the kind of biggest works of the 20th century are being made in the 1920s. Um, there's manifestos being written. And in Berlin, it was really the heart of the action because Weimar Berlin, as it was known, was a real centre of Bohemia. It was so many artists living there. People flocked from all around Europe and the world. And it was a real um, exciting hub of um, sexual and gender kind of experimentation and fluidity. It was actually a very kind of open and progressive place in terms of being a gender non-conforming or same-sex attracted person. And there was a lot of a lot of a lot of excitement. And I mean, sadly, that all um, got shut down very violently by, you know, when Hitler came into power a few years later and the, and the um, Nazi government. But I think to be to be alive at that moment of great change um, and great creativity and experimentation would be absolutely sensational. But, you know, as I said earlier, maybe the decade we're going into might prove to be something similar, like a similar kind of era of cultural renaissance. So maybe I don't need to travel back in time at all. Maybe I can just experience it in my lifetime. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for doing uh, this this morning. It's been a real pleasure. Like we had had not met before this, but um, I, I just was delighted by the entire experience. So I hope you had a good time too. Uh, it was great. Thanks so much for having me, Will. 